0: The Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Christos anesti. So now, obviously, the mood of the church changes. We're not as miserable anymore after <laughs> the last week, and the focus of the readings and everything changes again. But now into obviously a tone of joy. It's really nice for us to experience the the seasons of the church. Um, is that every single season of the church has its tone, it has its meaning, it has its rituals that are meant to make us focus on and meditate on on different things today's gospel is actually one of my favorites um, because it's one of the most relevant I think to our, our current generation which is to preach to those who are in doubt um, and in a comforting way we have sometimes a, a cultural stigma against people who question right sometimes if somebody asks too many questions, like, don't ask, don't ask, just accept, right? And there's even sometimes a negativity towards them, if they do, that they don't have a simple faith. And I think part of this culturally comes out of the Egyptian church because for millennia we've been murdered for the faith. Um, And so people took pride in, in having this simple faith where it says, I don't know, I don't care if I'm a theologian or not, I'm ready to lay my life down for this. And that's a, that is a beautiful thing. At the same time, it isn't wrong for another person to say, I don't get it, and I don't understand, and this doesn't make sense to me. And our Lord clearly doesn't get upset with that um, because of what we see here with, with Thomas. And what I like even more is that our Gospels don't sugarcoat Right, They don't say, and the disciples had everything figured out, and they were sitting down and said, oh, obviously the Lord said this, and we believe. They didn't. It says that before the first visit, even when Thomas wasn't there, they weren't sitting together having a great meal and, and enjoying their time. It says they were sitting together in great fear for what the Jews were going to do to them. Right, And it's also clear that they didn't really believe in the resurrection at first. In the Gospel we read on the feast. It says that when the woman came back um, to the disciples to tell them what they had seen, the response to the disciples was, ladies, these are idle tales. Another, in modern language, you're talking fairy tales, right? So we get it, you're sad, you wish that Jesus was here, but he's not. Jesus is dead, right? And that's the end of that. And this is a very important um, thing to look at because... Our Lord understood and knew that this is what the natural reaction would be, which is why He invested so much in ensuring that the disciples themselves were 100% certain of the resurrection. Because how on earth could they preach Christ risen if they themselves didn't believe in it? How are they going to be able to spread a gospel if they had absolutely no evidence of any kind that He really did rise from the dead? if that didn't happen as st paul said our preaching is in vain and of all men of all humans we as christians are the most miserable and i would agree completely right without the resurrection this is a horrible system if there isn't a resurrection then this is this is slavery right it, it has no hope in it it has no life in it it has no positive message it's just rules is what it will seem like if there wasn't a resurrection so our lord wanted to make sure in this whole plan of salvation, as we talked about on Great Friday, that everything was being taught to the people as he did things, right? He had this long drawn out Old Testament to teach them who they were, to teach them what is the image and likeness, to teach them what it is that he's looking for before giving them back this restoration that we talked about. And we're going to talk about restoration again possibly next week. But when he revealed himself to mankind, he also did it in an elaborate way to make sure that everybody would know who he was. Like we said on Good Friday, he didn't, for example, just live and die in secret, right? So there isn't a group of people who said, oh, by the way, there's some guy who came and he's God, right? There's, there's nothing strongly believable there, right? If he were to just die of natural illness or of age or whatever, he would look weak, it would be less believable. And if he were to choose his manner of death, as we said on Great Friday, then we would blame him for that. We would tell him, well, you you couldn't handle this. You chose this because it was was easier. But as we see, he keeps on intentionally doing things that the people didn't expect. So number one, he comes into a room, right, that's closed, right? The disciples say this on purpose to say he didn't knock on the door and walk in, right? He was just suddenly in their midst, in the middle of a a funeral party, essentially, right? So I can only imagine the change of, of mood... From, from this crying to, like, probably first one of disbelief of, like, are we all imagining, are we all hallucinating the same thing, right? And then this message of, of peace, right, and, uh, and a responsibility. And those are going to, the responsibility, all those are a topic for another sermon later. But Thomas wasn't with them. And Thomas, one thing that we see very clearly in Thomas in the few cameos he makes in the Gospels is Thomas is very real, Right? Thomas is not somebody who does lip service. He says what he's thinking, um, and he's usually more rational than St. Peter. Um, St. Peter is impulsive, but Thomas is calculated. Um, Thomas has, a, has a, a sharp mind, which I don't think was an accident for um, our Lord. And so Thomas says something very honestly, where he just says, you know what, that's really nice I'm glad that you guys had a great time, but I didn't see that. Um, and so because I didn't see it, this message doesn't make any sense to me. I can't preach that, right? I can't go around and say that the Lord is risen. You guys can go ahead and do it if you want, but I can. And our Lord responds to this not by coming to Him and saying, I can't believe you, Thomas, right? How is it that after all these times that we spent together and all the miracles, how is it that you didn't believe, right? How is that you didn't trust your friends? Why would they make it up, right? There is no negative response from the Lord. Instead we see that the Lord deals with Thomas's doubt by making a special apparition for him, right? This is actually a great honor, right? Where the Lord says, I'm coming back specifically for you because I did call you as an apostle and I do want you to preach and I do want you to preach with conviction. And so he appears and says, okay, Thomas, this is what you said, right? Almost to say... Like, I know what you're thinking, I know what you said, (laughs) even though I wasn't there. He's intentionally trying to resolve for him all of his doubt, right? It's not that the apostles told me something on the side and now I have to come and do it. I already know, right? I know who you are, I know what you said, and I know what you need. So come here and put your finger and touch it, right? And he wanted him to touch it in a very physical way, right? So that there would be a complete belief on the part of Thomas And because, as we said before, just speaking in riddles and rhymes isn't good enough for people to believe, right? If everything is a parable, right, it has its limitations. At one point, there has to be some real interaction. And so he says to Thomas, Place your hand here and put it in my side. Don't be disbelieving anymore, okay, but be believing. And then Thomas, obviously, this wasn't an uncomfortable or angry um, reaction. Or Thomas, first reaction of being like, "I'm so sorry, right? Like I didn't know, I didn't think." Like, but instead, his reaction is, to is to proclaim the Godhead of Christ, right? Is to say, "My Lord and my God." Is to say that no, this is no longer just a, a teacher that I'm interacting with. You are God, right? If you if you've been able to conquer death of your own power, then you must be God. And our Lord then gives out a special blessing that we should be honored to receive because there's two times where the Lord prayed for us, specifically us, the Christians who would come later. The first time was in Gethsemane, when he says, I pray not only for these, the apostles, but also for those who will believe through the words which they preach, which is is us. We're believers because of where the apostles went. And this is the second time because he says, Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed, which is an acknowledgement of our generation we didn't see. We didn't live in the time of Christ. We didn't get a chance to observe with our own eyes all of the things that the Gospel writers are saying. And so the Lord gives a special blessing to us saying, Yes, blessed are they rather who, not having seen, um, have believed. Our generation has a lot to take from these. The disciples wrote these things for us because this was their testimony. right? This was them saying to us, We saw these things with our own eyes. And it's up to you to accept our word or not. And that's why in the Gospels they really pour themselves out. They put all of their weaknesses in, they put their glories in, and they put their shame in. They talk about the things that they did right, and they talk about the things that they did wrong, and they talk about the things that they themselves were skeptical of. Because we live now in a generation that doubts everything. right? Everything is 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 now... Um, has to be proven through some kind of lab experience um, or some lab experiment. And faith is seen as being something ridiculous. It's seen as something to be spurned or something to be mocked, um, even though everyone on this planet has some kind of, of faith in, in something. And so we as Christians are called, and I think especially in this era of persecution, to visit and ask ourselves whether we are in the faith or not. So it might be that in the motherlands and in the Middle East and all these places, not just there in Nigeria and, and Indonesia, in many places there are persecutions, that are bodily persecutions, right? You're not persecution free in the West right? The, the persecution in the West is an intellectual persecution, um, is one that is anti-faith. So they're not going to necessarily kill you physically for your faith, but they may mock you, right? And, and we already see that many of us Christians modify our behaviors around other people because we claim that it's because we don't want to offend someone or we don't want to be in someone's face because we don't want to be in someone's face. But I think it's often beyond that where we'll actually deny our faith in some level, whether it's through a behavior, or through a a joke, or something that we'll accept in mockery, um, because we're not comfortable yet with accepting ridicule. So doubt is normal, okay? Doubt is not an abnormal thing, it's a very normal thing. God created us as intellectual beings, so we're supposed to use our minds, we're supposed to think about things, we're supposed to interact with our senses, and with our minds, and with our hearts. We have all of the above. But the two things that resolve doubt are knowledge and experience. If we don't have either of these two things, we're going to always wrestle with doubt. There's a famous Eastern Orthodox writer that I really love. He's a former atheist, uh, Metropolitan Anthony Bloom. Um, And I was reading one of his books a few years back, and he said something that really resonated with me, and I, I repeat it over and over, where he said, you know, the Christians, they baffle me. Um, he goes, because a, a, a good scientist, he goes, when an experiment doesn't turn out the way that the scientists planned, if they get bad results or no results, a good scientist is happy by that. A good scientist isn't upset. The scientist is happy because he got new information, right? It found out that it wasn't what I thought, it's actually this, right? Or I was doing this thing wrong, or I'm missing this piece of information, or whatever it was that we were doing was wrong, and that leads to greater depth, greater knowledge, more effects. He goes, but the Christian, for some reason, he goes, the Christian when he finds out that God isn't what he thought, or there's a a challenge to his faith, instead of saying, thank you, Lord, for exposing me to my ignorance, teach me, right? He goes, the Christian instead buries his head in the ground and says, please, Lord, don't let me see. And he goes, I don't understand that at all. And this is true. We often are taking the stance. But really the, the better solution is to confront the doubt because if something is true, we're not going to be afraid of the challenge that comes to it because it's either true or it isn't. But we have to ask the right questions. Right? We have to be genuine in our seeking of the truth. I I've told the story many times because it really makes a, a good point to me. When I was visiting home in Canada uh, two or three visits ago, there was a shooting on Parliament Hill, which for Canadians is very uncommon, um, and it happened the day that I arrived. I was, dri- I was driving from the airport to, to my parents' home, and so I tuned into the CBC, the the radio, the National Broadcasting Corporation there, and they're getting all these witnesses as they're, they're leaving the building, and they're having all these interviews with them, and one by one, they interview people who were in the building, and you had this one person who was like, "Oh my goodness, this is traumatizing. I'll never forget it." I heard it so clearly. There were six bullets that rang out, and I like freaked out, and I ran into a room and I hid under a desk, and the story goes on. And then the next person comes on, and the person is like, "This is something obviously going to be imprinted in my mind forever. I will never forget it." There were four bullets, and then this happened, and then I ran and I did blah, blah blah blah. And then the next person had an unforgettable experience of two bullets, and another person with no bullets. And everyone had a different account of how many bullets um, that were there. All of them end up hiding out somewhere, and all of them end up getting out. If a person were to base their belief on the shooting of Parliament Hill, on the eyewitness testimony of how many bullets rang out, then we're not going to have a consensus because right, everybody gave a different account of, their, of the bullets that they heard. But would the rational conclusion from this be, therefore there was no shooting? It would be completely irrational. There was a shooting, there were bodies, there's a person who died, right? there's a, a video camera of the time, but if we focus on the wrong aspect right, of a question that's not going to lead me anywhere, I'm not going to resolve my doubt. right. And so we need to confront doubt But we also need to make sure we're asking the right questions, right? What is it that I'm asking and what is it that I'm expecting? A lot of the critics of the Gospels hold the Gospels to a completely different kind of scrutiny than they do everything else in existence, where they want it to be written in a way that it was not written, right? And that's why knowledge needs to be added, right, of saying, how were the Gospels written? Why were they written in this way? What were the traditions of the time? How did people tell their stories in those days? Right, You need to understand those things so that when somebody challenges your faith that you have, as St. Peter said, that we read during Great Friday, having in us the reason for the belief or the hope that is within us, an understanding and a defense, not to go punch people in the face with our faith, but of saying, I'm not irrational for believing in this. I'm not weird because I've accepted something like this. Knowledge and experience, even um, when the Da Vinci Code was a big thing. Um, I remember seeing the, the video of it and seeing their the account of the Council of Nicaea, which caused a lot of people scandal, and they just had this big brawl of old men punching each other's lights out. like It was, it was very aggressive and, and violent, whereas no account of history presents it that way. right? There's, there's many accounts of, of Nicaea. There are people who were there at Nicaea. There are letters about it. There were consequences of it. And so the challenge to us all is do you know your faith, right? Do you have knowledge, right? I'm not saying you all need to go out and become theologians, but why not? If you have the gift to be a theologian, why not? If you have the gift of history, why not, right? If you don't, if you don't acquire these things, it'll be hard for you to grow. My own personal life, I had major challenges of doubt, um, borderline atheism at some point. And so these questions to me were a big deal right of why are they saying these things does this make any sense how can you make this claim if this other claim also exists right but the more that that one interacts with the gospels the more that one interacts with history with mind body soul everything the more answers come to this and our lord again is doing this so that you can have comfort in your belief because if the lord was not risen these disciples are monumentally pardon my language, but in the true sense of the word, monumentally stupid. Because 11 out of 12 of these men were murdered for this belief. These disciples are, at the beginning of the story, meeting in fear. They're meeting in fear because of the Jews. If the Lord was not risen, if they did not see him, what on earth would compel them to then go to the Jews and say that he is risen? What would compel them to go and become even more ostracized? The most natural, logical, human response that anybody would have after an event like this where their hero died and they were being persecuted for it would be for them to go right back to the Jews and say, you know what, you're right. He's not the Messiah. We thought he was and that's why we followed him. Clearly he's not because he didn't do all of these things that he said he's gonna do. So it's even good for you to have us on your side because we were his closest allies, right? We're the ones who can easily put to rest all the disturbances that are gonna be here. But instead what we see is that these men go proclaim very boldly what it is that they have seen and witnessed with their own eyes. We see that they go into prison for this. We see that they take lashings for this. We see that they're not treated well for any of these things. Because they have the conviction of its truth, because they interacted with the truth and know that it's true. And in doing so, they converted and changed not only Judea, but these men who had no degrees, right, that were the the lowliest of the low, actually changed the whole entire world literally, right? They flipped the Roman Empire upside down right where where they they came with a message that on every level to a traditional roman it's completely irrational completely irrational right but this this so-called cult took the world by storm may god grant us that we also interact with the truth of his resurrection that we interact with the truth of the gospels and that we ourselves confront those doubts that we have with knowledge with experience so that the lord may indeed Grant us the blessing of we who have not seen and yet have believed. And glory be to our God forever and ever. Amen.